Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. A very special guest with us on the podcast this time is Carl Mayard Scarp, Vice President of the Evangelical Environmental Network. Previously, he was the national organizer and spokesperson for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, and he's been featured in news outlets such as CNN, PBS, NPR, and NBC News. Kyle joins us today to talk about his new IVP InterVarsity Press America book called Following Jesus in a Warming World, a Christian Call to Climate Action. During many years of speaking to and equipping people to work for climate action, Kyle has seen more and more young Christians waking up to the realities of climate change, which surely we all need to. Kyle, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure for, uh, to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, why are so many Christians silent about climate change? That's a great question um, with lots of answers, I think. Just a couple that I think are, are really important for us to wrestle with. One is politics. Um, several studies show that actually it's not our theology um, it, it's not anything other than what our political affiliation is that is the, the, the strongest indicator of what our position is on climate change. Uh, and in America in particular, we have become such a polarized society and polarized around identity, which means that our identities get wrapped up in our politics. And, and for Christians, uh, being a Christian following Jesus is one of our most intimate, important identities. And when that gets wrapped up with politics, um, it gets really, really complicated really fast. And it gets really hard to disentangle that. Uh, so I think um, our identities and our faith have been wrapped up in our political commitments. And uh, because climate change has become uh, an issue that is divided on identity and ideology, there are a lot of Christians out there who have never, frankly, been told that they have permission to care about climate change if they are of a certain political persuasion. So I think that's a really important part of it. Another important part is theology. It, it matters what we believe uh, about what God thinks of creation. Uh, it matters what we believe about what our responsibility is toward creation. And it, it even matters what we believe the end of the story for creation is. Uh, because all of that influences the way that we play our part in in the story now. So if our theology tells us that uh, creation is destined for destruction and that we're simply passing through onto our true home, which is in heaven, then we're not going to have a whole lot of incentive uh, to take care of creation now. And it's really easy for a theology of dominion to take root that says, you know, we have authority to do whatever we want with creation. It doesn't matter because it's all passing away anyway. So I, I think um, theology and politics are, are maybe the two most uh, important reasons why Christians, particularly of my generation and younger folks, um, have grown up in a church that's been largely silent about climate change. Yes, you're right. I think uh, that countless millennial and Gen Z Christians simply haven't been told that their faith has anything to say about climate issues. Now, I think you've probably already answered the question, but why is that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, I, I think it, it it is down to those those really pervasive narratives that are told to us. Those political narratives that are told to us. Political narratives that tell us good Christians vote for a particular party and not the other party. So if one party says climate change is important and the other party says it isn't, then that that's all we need, right? That that's kind of the extent of our political formation when it comes to climate change for a lot of us. 
and and that that escapist theology that that kind of dualist the dualistic theology that separates the spiritual from the material uh and says that the spiritual is what's most important and the material is is passing away which incidentally is not a biblical idea that's a platonic idea that's greek philosophy that's not biblical theology but it, it is pervasive uh in in much of the western church and you know i, I think there are also uh cultural and economic reasons uh, i think the project of kind of unfettered free market capitalism which i will separate from a, a broadly defined uh, capitalist system, right? I'm not critiquing capitalism. I'm critiquing a particular form of extreme, unfettered, laissez-faire, free market capitalism that sees no role for any sort of regulation and any sort of guardrails around the economy um, to, to try to protect vulnerable people, the, the creation. That's also quite pervasive in, in Western societies. Um, and it, it it has infiltrated the church in many ways too, where where our faith has become conflated with this kind of extremist economic agenda as well. So I think there's all kinds of cultural, economic, political, theological reasons. Yeah. Now, how did you personally become involved in climate action? It's a great question. My my uh, my older brother was kind of a linchpin for me. So I, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian community. That was beautiful. It taught me so many beautiful lessons and gave me so many beautiful gifts, and I'm grateful for it. Um, yet it was it was quite silent when it came to the connection between my faith and the natural world and climate change in particular. And that changed when my older brother, who grew up in the same community, went on a a study abroad program to New Zealand, um, uh -huh. where he he studied yes in your neck of the woods. He studied at the intersection of theology and biblical studies, and biology and ecology. And it was a Christian study abroad program. So, so his faith was integrated into the whole thing, that this wasn't uh, some sort of covert operation to take Christian kids around the world and inculcate them in secular humanism and deconstruct everything, right? It, it was the deeply Christian program um, that sought to help students integrate their faith with the study of God's, God's world, God's creation. And he came back totally transformed. And, and kind of the climax of that experience was when he announced to our family, which is, uh, you know, kind of meat and potatoes from the Midwest, that he was now a vegetarian because of his experiences. Um, and for me, that sent me reeling. I mean, he may as well he may have well may as well have come back and said, uh, I, I am a dog now. <laughs> That's kind of how it felt. I, I knew nobody like me. Who had ever uh, made the choice to become a vegetarian? Uh, I had caricatures in my head of people who would make that choice, and they were nothing like me and nothing like my brother. It, it had me totally unmoored. So I had to decide: did I want to lump my brother, who I loved and admired and respected, into that caricature of people who that wasn't real, but it was real to me, um, or did I want to suspend my assumptions and hear him out? And he was gracious and kind and patient in, in helping me understand that this new commitment of his was not him rejecting the values and the faith that we had been taught. It was him trying to live more deeply into all of that, him trying to live more deeply into his faith and to enact those values in his life. And that was the spark for me. And, and that spark got fanned into flame when I, I had my own experiences. I, I went to West Virginia as a student in college to learn about the effects of mountaintop removal coal mining on local populations. I traveled to Kenya to hear from local farmers about how changing weather patterns were affecting their 
livelihoods. Um, I heard a story from a father and a grandfather in New Orleans who lived through Hurricane Katrina and lost his mother and his three-year-old daughter um, in the floodwaters. Um, and, and all of it for me was adding up to kind of this holy equation, <laughs> this holy formula that creation care equals people care. Um, that this isn't just about uh, the non-human creation, even though scripture is clear that God loves and cares for that too. And that is a motivation in this work, but it's also about how we love our neighbors. When, when I think about the ways that I have learned about how climate change is impacting my neighbor's ability to breathe, to drink clean water, to feed themselves, to flourish and thrive in creation, I don't know how to respond to Jesus' command to love God and to love my neighbor without doing something about it without without fighting for my neighbor's right to clean air and clean water and clean air and a safe and stable climate where they can have the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give. Let's come on and look at some of the biblical theology of creation because I we were talking before the interview and I said I loved this part of your book. I, mean, I loved all of it, but this part particularly fascinated me. Now, how does the Bible cast the created world in the big story hmm. of God's mission? I had a lot of fun with this chapter. Um, I am a trained theologian and a pastor, so th this is always kind of the, the the bit that gets me most excited to talk about is to think about the theology of creation care and what scripture actually has to say. And, and I write in the book a bit that I, I think a lot of us grow up with the message, either implicit or explicit, that the non-human creation is kind of the stage upon which the the drama of God's uh, saving work in the world is set, right? And the, the main players are, are God and Jesus and human beings and the animals and the trees and the creation are, are nice set pieces, but that's it. And what I try to do in the book is, is actually recast that and, and help people understand that actually all of creation has a, has a fundamental role to play in the mission of God and in the saving work of God. And I kind of walk through four acts. The first act focuses on how God creates a good world and calls us to care for it too. I, I, um, I'm not sure I call it this in my book, but I've since kind of come come to call this God's overflowing heart. Uh, we see God's overflowing heart in Genesis when he can't help but pour his love outward and create a, a beautiful world that he then steps back from every step of the way and says, oh man, that is good. Oh, that is good. That is really good. And he calls it good seven times, right? And, and we know that in the Hebrew imagination, seven has significant meaning of wholeness and completion and even perfection. God is calling creation maximally good. And then he creates humans to, uh, in Genesis 1, it says to rule over creation, the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and everything that moves along the ground. And in Genesis 2, takes the soil creatures that he breathes his life into, his breath into, and says to avad and shamar the garden, the Hebrew words. That'll often be translated as to till and to keep, but actually these words show up all over in the Old Testament. We have a really good idea of what they, they mean, and I actually like the translation serve and protect a lot better, to serve and protect creation. And I actually think that the Bible places these two commands next to each other for a reason that they belong together, that we can't separate the command to rule from the command to serve and protect. And essentially, the command then given to humans, the full command is to rule through service, um, to to rule creation, but to do it as as God rules, because God is the true owner of creation, right? And, and to rule as Christ rules, because Jesus shows us how God exercises his authority over creation when when he is on earth. And it's not through exploitation or domination, it's through humility and sacrifice and service. 
Jesus becomes a tiny baby. Jesus climbs up onto a cross. Like, this is how Jesus, the true king of creation, exercises his authority. So rule, yes. And, and the, the Western church often stops there, right? Rule, okay, great. Let's go rule. Let's have dominion. We have a blank check. Um, but we can't separate it from uh, through service. We, we rule by serving and protecting creation. Um, that's what we see at the beginning, at least. And uh, there's plenty more that we could talk about, Brent, but if you want to go in a different direction, then please. Well, I'd like to ask a couple more questions just to carry the biblical yeah. theology through, if, if I may. But the end of the book of Job's always fascinated me. Mm. God turns up, Job's been um, complaining for chapters and chapters and chapters, and he finally gets his, his day in court with, with God. And what does God talk to him about? Mm-hmm. He talks to him about creation and animals and how much he loves the world he's created. I wonder how God's speech to Job at the end of the book there it really embodies his love for the mm-hmm. created world. Absolutely. Uh, I, I love that, and I love that you brought it up. Job is one of my favorite places to go for creation care uh, lessons. Um, and it might not be where everybody thinks to go immediately, but I think Job 38 through 41 is some of the most beautiful poetry, full stop, right? Not just in the Bible, but anywhere. It, it is a love letter from God to God's creation. And I I, I think, you know, the, the reason that God doesn't respond to Job with a, a legal treatise on why he has the right to, to do to Job what is happening, I think is because God is a God who is deeply involved and passionately concerned with God's creation. And he shows it in Job 38 through 41. It's as if he is saying to Job, if it feels like I've nodded off, check my references. Right? Like if, if it feels like I'm I'm if it feels like I'm nodded off on the job, like I'm not paying attention anymore to you, oh one who thinks you may be the center of creation, here's your reality check. I've been out midwifing fawns. I've been out delighting in Leviathan as she frolics in the waves. I've been out directing the the snow across the world and the showing the the lightning where to go. I, I love that. I love that response to Joe because it it serves the purpose of putting him in his place, but not doing it in a mean spirited way. Even though you know the text has a few zingers, God, God, God has some jokes for Job, but he does it in a way that. It, it, it doesn't dress Job down as much as it recenters the rest of creation and it places Job in his proper place in the midst of creation, right? And I think it's a lesson for us as humans. Humans love to put ourselves in the center of the story. We love to believe that we are the most important part of creation, that we are the crown, the jewel of creation, when in fact, scripture is very clear that while humans do have a particular role in the midst of creation, we are a part of creation, just like the badgers and the beavers and the billy goats. We are creatures. And the great sin of Adam and Eve was believing they weren't creatures anymore, right? And believing they didn't need God and that they were at the center of creation and at the center of the universe. When in fact, Christ is at the center of creation and we are in the midst of the rest of creation as creatures. In what sense are all things, because Paul writes about this in uh, Colossians 1, doesn't he? In what sense are all things created by and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I love this. I, I love what Paul does in Colossians, where where he he uses this phrase "all things" six different times, and well, eight times actually. Uh, it, it shows up as "all things" six times, but but the root word "pas" um, shows up eight times. And uh, if my decades in Christian K 
through 12 school and Christian college and seminary have taught me anything. It's when the Bible repeats itself, pay attention. Yes. Um, especially, especially in a letter that's written for the ear, right? Paul was writing for people to hear this letter. Uh, so this is a rhetorical uh, device that we are reading, but he, he is doing it on purpose so that his hearers will perk up and pay attention and, and hear his main point. He wants his, his listeners, his audience to hear all things. And, and, uh, yeah, he, he tells us that Christ has created, uh, is in all things, and all things are created for Christ. Uh, he is before all things. Uh, and I think it does a few things. One thing it does is, again, it centers Christ and it decenters us, right? Christ is the true king of creation. I often hear this phrase among well-meaning folks, like people, people who want to help the church move forward on creation care and climate change. I often hear this phrase of like, well, God gave us the earth, so we have to take care of it. And that's well-meaning, but it's not true. It's not biblical. God didn't give us the earth. God God is jealous for the earth. The earth is the Lord's, <laughs> right? He placed us in the midst of us, but he didn't give it to us. He has not given anybody the earth. The earth is the Lord's. And I, I think what, what I love about what Paul does here is he reminds us of that, that actually uh, the earth is is the Lord's and Christ is the true king of creation. And, and any command to rule over it, like we see in Genesis 1, is derivative of his authority. Any authority we might have over creation is derivative of Christ's ultimate authority. So if we do rule, we rule as Christ ruled, because uh, all things are created through, for, and, and in Christ. And then what he does, what I love about this, what he does then at the end, he says, all things are being reconciled through Christ. And I, I explore this a bit in my book. Um, I think it's easy for us to assume that this is some sort of literary flourish, whose true parameters don't actually extend beyond the individual human heart, that, that this is just some nice uh, metaphor that, that Paul uses. But what if we're wrong about that? Like, what, what if Paul actually means exactly what he says? What if Paul means, by all things, human hearts, of course, and redwood forests, diving dolphins and soaring seagulls, right? What, what if he means all things? And we actually see this theme echoed elsewhere in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, where we read that God's will through his that that his good pleasure is to see all things gathered up through Christ uh, and to be in unity, all things in heaven and on earth to be uh, united in Christ. And we see it in Romans 8 when when we read that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the glory of the children of God. We see it uh, in 2 Corinthians 5 when Paul tells us that the ministry of reconciliation that is from Christ is for us and for the whole cosmos. And, you know, it in John 3, 16, we, we read that God so loved the cosmos that he sent his only son. Well, if that's true, then why wouldn't the whole cosmos be included in God's reconciling, saving work? This this cosmos that we see throughout scripture that God loves and delights in and takes uh, and has affection for. We better deal with Revelation before we move on. What what does uh, Revelation, just briefly, what does, if we can, what does Revelation <laughs> teach us about God's, I know this is a massive question. Yeah. What does Revelation teach us about God's big plan for creation? And, yeah. and how, and a double question, which I shouldn't, I should never ask a double question, but I'm going <laughs> to, and how will God restore the creation when yeah. Jesus returns? I think this is so important because, like I said earlier, what we believe about the end of the story shapes the way we play our part in it right now. So we have to get our eschatology right. And uh, I think for a really long time, the Western church, uh, especially here in the U.S., has had an eschatology of escape, that God will evacuate disembodied souls out of the earth to their true home in heaven. 
And then what happens later doesn't really matter. It might burn up. We don't know, but it'll probably burn up. But actually, what Revelation shows us is something quite different, particularly Revelation 21. So, so you know, Revelation as a book, setting that aside, right? There's not enough time to, to deal with all of Revelation. It is a big, complicated book. But Revelation 21 is has John the Revelator kind of pulling back the curtain and showing us a peek at the end of the at the end of the story. And it's not disembodied souls going up into heaven to be with God. It's the opposite. It's God coming down to earth to be with us, just as he did in Jesus. And it's God joining heaven and earth once and for all, just as he did in Jesus, right? He's he's consummating what he did in Jesus, which was coming down to us, joining heaven and earth in a person. And he's coming down finally to join heaven and earth uh, perfectly in, in perfect union. And, and we see, John says, he sees a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And a voice from the throne says, I'm making everything new. Uh, and that word new is really important because I think a lot of people read it and they assume brand new, right? Because English doesn't have a lot of nuance around the word new. But the, the Koine Greek that Revelation was written in did. There were actually two words for new in ancient Greek. There was neos, which was brand new, never before seen, straight out of the box. And there's kainos which is renewed, taking something that is and bringing it to its fullest intended purposes. John never uses the word netos once in Revelation 21. It's always, I saw a renewed heaven. I saw a renewed earth. I saw a renewed Jerusalem. And Christ says from the throne, I am renewing all things. In other words, Christ isn't making all new things. He's making all things new. And that matters because it means that that this creation, the non-human creation and the human creation has an eternal destiny. Somehow, mysteriously, just as Christ's resurrected body has continuity with the body that went into the tomb, yet is transformed in mysterious ways, in the same way, this creation will be transformed, but will have continuity with with what is here now. We don't understand that mystery completely, but that seems to be the witness of Scripture, of of the the, the resurrection of Jesus and in Revelation 21. So in other words, God doesn't intend to burn everything up and start over because as we've seen, God has a heart that overflows for creation that breaks when sin uh, separates him from it, does whatever it takes to bring it back to himself, including taking it on himself forever in in a body and and reconciling all of it back to himself because he wants to renew it. He doesn't want to lose it. He doesn't want to destroy it. And, and that I think that matters immensely for the ethical demands that that um, that the story then makes on us and how we play our part in that story now. Yes, I was going to say, given all of that, <laughs> what are some of the practical ways? Let's get to the practical. Not that the, yeah. the, the theology is immensely practical, of course, but people listening will say, well, what do we do? What can we do? So how, how, what are some of the practical ways we can all help solve climate change? Yes, uh, such an important question. So uh, a few thoughts, uh, and, and I explore some of these in my book. Um, I think the first framing thought is to push back on the framing of the question even a little bit and say, I want us to have hope. I do. I want us to have hope, but I don't want us to have uh, an unrealistic hope or a dewy-eyed hope that we can somehow stop or reverse climate change tomorrow, right? Um, Because we can't. The science tells us we can't do that. Even if we stopped emitting um, everything tomorrow, there's enough in the atmosphere now that, that the impacts are baked in for decades to come. 
So the, 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 the name of the game now is slowing climate change as much as we possibly can, averting as much warming as we possibly can, and adapting as much as we can to, to help our neighbors live and flourish and thrive in a warmer world. So what can we do to, to, to do that? Uh, a few things. One is, uh, believe it or not, one of the most powerful tools that all of us have is our stories. Um, our own story of why we care about climate change, why it matters to us, and why why we think it's important to do something about it. If you are a living, breathing human on planet Earth who loves living and breathing humans on planet Earth who eat and drink water, then we all have reasons to care about climate change, right? And we don't have to change a thing about who we are. We don't have to become someone we're not. Um, exactly who we are is exactly who we need to be to care about climate change. Many of us have not been given permission uh, or ever heard that said, but it's true. So all of us have reasons to care. And the research shows us that even though all of us have a reason to care, we're not really talking about it with each other in any meaningful way. Uh, and so especially in the church, one of the most powerful tools we have is our stories. Tell your story. I told a little bit of my, a, a little bit about my story at the top about how my brother helped me see this differently. And then I had experiences that put me face to face with people who were telling me that climate change was killing them. And that changed me. And that's one of the reasons why I, I do this now. So I try to tell my story a lot. And believe it or not, uh, you are the best messenger for your friends and family and churches. It's not me. It's not Al Gore. It's you. And, and the really good news is you don't have to have all of the scientific studies in your back pocket. You don't have to know all of the clean energy provisions that are on the books and the tax credits and, and blah, blah, blah. You don't need any of that jargon or minutia. You just need your story. That's it. And, and you need to share it because research shows that um, conversations about climate change in close social circles lead to greater awareness and acceptance of climate change science and facts. More so than a scientific study, more so than a flashy graphic, more so than a dire warning from the UN. So let, let's get good at talking to each other about climate change. I know that can be scary, but it's less scary the more you practice, I promise. Uh, and it's really, really important. Briefly, two other things. Uh, the, the second thing we can do is share or we can participate in uh, the spiritual disciplines of climate action. I, I talk about the lifestyle choices that we can all make, um, that laundry list that we all know, right? There's an appendix in the back of my book, all the things that we can do in our own lives to reduce our footprint. I like to talk about them as spiritual disciplines because it, it takes them out of the realm of kind of moral obligation and it brings it into the realm of joy and opportunity because these are practices that form our hearts more closely after the heart of God, which is a heart for God's creation. So when we wash our clothes in cold water and we turn that washer knob, we focus for a split second our minds on our holy duty to care for God's creation. And then when we weed in our garden every summer, we're becoming more intimately um, aware of the, the world within a world that is soil. So, so those all of those practical lifestyle choices that we can make, practice them mindfully and consider them spiritual disciplines, part of your, your walk with Jesus. And then finally, the third thing we can all do is advocate. Um, I, I talk about in, in my book that we need to love our neighbors in public through advocacy, because I believe that advocacy is a concrete form of public neighbor love. Policy created the conditions in which the world could warm, and we're going to need policy to bring the temperature down again. So that takes all kinds of different forms, including and not least voting. <laughs> 
and communicating with our elected officials and making sure that they know that we're paying attention to what they're doing, that we want them to do everything they can to address climate change, and that we're going to vote accordingly when the time comes if if they're not taking that seriously. Final question, Carl. We're just about out of time. It's a question that was actually posed by my co-host, uh, Ian Rito, who's not able to be with us. Here's a, he apologizes. He would love to have joined us. How do we respond to climate change without destroying our economies? Mm, really important question. I think 10 or 15 years ago, it was a legitimate choice between economic growth or environmental protection. The landscape has changed dramatically since then. One example is the price of solar power has dropped over 400 times in the last 50 years or so. Solar power and wind power, when all subsidies are taken away, is actually the cheapest form of energy in most U.S. markets right now. Certainly cheaper than coal, um, cheaper than natural gas in a lot of markets, too. And it's only getting cheaper and cheaper. When we talk about jobs and how so many jobs have been lost to things like manufacture or automation in manufacturing, outsourcing, there is an opportunity to create literally millions of good paying family sustaining jobs, creating the infrastructure that we're going to need to transition away from a fossil fuel based economy to a clean energy economy. We're going to need uh, wind blades, we're going to need solar panels, we're going to need those erected, we're going to need tens of thousands of electricians to electrify our homes and our buildings. There are, there, there, the economic opportunity is perhaps unparalleled in modern history. Um, if, if we can get the policy in place to make sure that historic energy communities, particularly those from West Virginia that I visited, places that have powered America for the last century and can be proud of that and should be proud of it, making sure that they're not left behind. We need to transition in a way that's just. Uh, we need robust investment in, in job retraining programs that prioritize these communities so that coal miners become the folks who are putting up our solar panels and our wind panels and our, our wind farms and our wind blades. So the, the employment opportunity is huge. We have to do it justly, but it's huge. The cost savings is there too. Um, that, so that the economics has shifted in such a way that it just makes better and better economic sense every single day uh, to transition to a clean energy economy. And by the way, we get all of the other benefits of cleaner air, cleaner water, healthier communities. So I, I, I do believe that there was a legitimate debate to be had 15 or 20 years ago about how do we do this in a way that that doesn't destroy our economy? Now, uh, the clean energy transition is perhaps the greatest economic opportunity in, in our lifetimes and maybe a century or more. Yes, so much to think about. Thanks, Carl. Carl Maillard Scarp and his book from IVP America is called Following Jesus in a Warming World, a Christian Call to Climate Action. You will be challenged by it. I certainly was. You'll be fascinated by it. There's so much in it to think about as we move forward and in the, in the next few years are going to be absolutely critical uh, for us all. And uh, thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Kyle, bless you in your work and advocacy. And thank you so much for this uh, conversation. Thank you, Brent. This was fun. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. 
Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.